Our sermon text this morning, uh, this evening, is from Psalm 27, which we were just singing. Uh, so, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, turn to Psalm uh, 27. Last Sunday, I uh, mentioned uh, earlier, I closed out my pastoral ministry in, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as I'm transitioning to a new role in central Pennsylvania soon. And uh, I thought, what do I want to leave the congregation with? And I thought, this psalm uh, is one to leave them with. Uh, this psalm, and particularly verse 4, is a great exhortation for all of us as Christians to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple that calling uh, that we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And with his beauty before you, sin loses its luster. The world's attractions fade. And as the psalm is going to bear out, uh, even the threats of enemies lose their urgency. So we're going to hear that in God's word. Uh, listen now to the reading of God's word from Psalm 27. Of David, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's the reading of God's word. Uh, let's ask for God's blessing in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a light to our path a lamp to our feet. Lord, it gives us guidance both far ahead and just the path immediately in front of us. Lord, uh, your word is so powerful. Lord, your word makes wise the simple. You tell us that the truth sets us free. And so we pray, Lord, asking that your word would be powerful among us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully uh, to bless us, to make us more faithful disciples. Uh, to bring to faith those that are still dead in sins and trespasses, to give them life. Lord God, we pray that you would bring faith through the hearing of your word. Lord, that we would uh, know that you're here with us and that you would strengthen us and that you would bless us, not because of any worthiness in us, not because of any worthiness in the one who proclaims your word, 
but because you are a God full of grace and mercy, abounding in steadfast love. And so, Lord, we call upon you this evening and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, the world, the flesh, and the devil assail us all on a daily basis. We all live in this battle. There are no spectators. We fight temptation. We fight sin within. And then we we also combat unbelief around us, trying to take our thoughts captive to Christ in a world that invites us to worship the idols that it adores, the idols of lust and power and wealth. And of course, although it's usually more subtle, we're under spiritual siege by an adversary who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour our souls with his various schemes. And God's word here in this chapter, Psalm 27, acknowledges acknowledges the battles of life. The psalmist envisions a world of evildoers who have no regard for playing by the rules. Uh, Evildoers have no sense of fair play. They won't hesitate to fight dirty, to lie, cheat, and steal, to throw sand in one's face, to blind them. And David brings up not just one enemy, but multiple enemies assailing him, evildoers. And there are so many that uh, David envisions an army encamping against him. You could perhaps imagine a hillside full of tents lit up with the fires around. You get an inkling of what David is calling us to picture and envisioning here. This great horde wants to eat up his flesh, meaning they're like wild animals. They're hungry to devour and defeat him. But twice, he brings up fear in verse 1. And so let me ask you as we begin, what is it that makes you afraid? What is it that makes you fearful? You know, the, the reformer John Calvin said that the human heart was an idol factory. And I think fear and idolatry go right hand in hand. So can't we sort of modify what Calvin was saying slightly to say that the human heart is also a fear factory? Our fears are legion. We turn little things into great things. We turn molehills into mountains. We make a big deal out of things that matter very little, but we ignore the very real dangers that our world presents. There is evil in our world. There's danger in our world. Even driving in our car isn't perfectly safe, but it's a calculated risk that we take for good purposes, like coming to the Lord's house on the Lord's day to hear his word and worship. And the media around us doesn't help us with fear. They know that they can stoke fear. People will click on more websites. They'll sell more newspapers. And yet, God here in this psalm tells God's people to have confidence in a fear-inducing world. And I want you to see how he gives us confidence here. It isn't just pointing us to ourselves. God doesn't just point you to yourself and say, don't be afraid. You're really a strong person. You can face and handle whatever dangers there are out you, uh, around you. It isn't, oh, those threats are not really w- real. It doesn't say here in God's word, don't be afraid because you're rulers. They're dependable, trustworthy people. No, how do we have confidence in this fear-inducing world? The psalm points us to God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You know, so much of what I think is wrong 
in the church today is that we need a vision of God, who he is, and what he's done. And instead, we're given a vision of ourselves. We're given a vision of man. But God continually reveals who he is and calls us to live in light of who he is, responding to him. Be holy, he says, because I am holy. And we're going to see that as we go through this text. My three points this evening are the Lord is strong, trust in him. Secondly, the Lord is beautiful, gaze on him. And then finally, the Lord is faithful, wait and hope in him. So for this first one, the Lord is strong, trust in him. You see at the beginning of this psalm, David, the psalm writer, is counseling himself. We could say that, like many of us on various occasions, he's giving himself a pep talk. Uh, David is assuring himself and anyone around him with him not to fear. And then in verse 7, he, he turns to God and he prays to the Lord. And then he goes back in the last verse to addressing the people with him. He is confident in a fear-inducing world, or at least he's telling himself to be confident. He's telling himself not to be afraid because he knows his enemies are the ones who are going to fall. Look at verse 2 and 3. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Just imagine those things going on in your own life. If you can imagine an army encamping, surrounding your house, seeking your uh, destruction, declaring war upon you, and yet, like Elisha in 2 Kings 6, surrounded by an army, David says he's confident. It reminds me of that old story told by the old-school Presbyterian B.B. Warfield of an army officer who was in a western city in a time of violence and danger. So you can imagine uh, London during the bombings in World War II. Uh, And the story goes like this. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of mien whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned to look at him only to find that the stranger had done the same. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him and, touching his chest to his forefinger, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He says, I knew you were a shorter catechism man by your looks. Why, that was just what I was thinking of you, was the other man's response. Friends, that's the kind of confidence that God's people can have. Courage, we're going to see at the end of this psalm, comes from the Lord. It comes from trusting in him. And David makes it clear that the deliverance that he's looking for from these threats, from this fear-inducing world, it's not for a selfish end. It's for the purpose of continuing to seek God and delight in God. He's not just here for his own pleasure. He's not just praying Deliver me, Lord, so that I can keep doing what I want to do. Look again at verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. This is his priority in life. This is what he wants protected. It isn't just Lord Get me out of this mess so that my lifestyle is the same. Lord, protect 
my lifestyle. Lord, protect my investments. So often our prayers are like that, aren't they? They're curved in on ourselves. Those kinds of prayers are not the ones that God delights to answer. Usually they're the kind that God refuses, as in Haggai 1, where God says through the prophet, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, which while each of you busies himself with his own house. In other words, the people were seeking their own priorities. And friends, we do have reason to fear the loss of our lifestyle if we're busy with building our own kingdoms, our own priorities. God is disruptive of sin in the best way. He is jealous in the best way. He doesn't ensure your idols, but he ensures what is best for you. David's confidence here isn't in his own abilities. It's in the Lord. Remember how this psalm opens. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. He's light in darkness. He's salvation, which is exactly what Jesus' name means. If you can imagine the most majestic castle with all of its ramparts, all its battlements, it doesn't compare to God and the protection that he provides. God is a stronghold. You could picture all these fortifications and they don't compare to the inexhaustible protection that only our God affords. He is the stronghold of your life. You're not the stronghold. Your your, uh, abilities are not your stronghold. The Lord is the stronghold of our lives. And so in light of all these things of who God is, the psalmist says, whom shall I be afraid of? Of whom shall I fear? No one can defeat God. No, God fears no one. And so his people fear no one. I can't help but think that the Apostle Paul had this psalm in mind in his triumphant exclamation in Romans 8. Sorry to make you guys hear this again. I know you've been hearing Romans 8. Uh, but Romans 8, 32 to 35, hear the echoes of Psalm 27. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our confidence comes from who God is and what he's done, not looking to ourselves. Looking to God is the remedy for fear. Meditating on him keeps fear at bay. So friends, your God is mighty. Trust in him. But secondly, how do you cultivate confidence in a fear-inducing world? The second point here is the Lord is beautiful. Gaze on him. We're told here not just to trust in the Lord, but we're told how to cultivate confidence in the wide variety of challenging life situations. Not only do we cry to him, but we gaze upon his beauty. We worship him. We believe in him. Few sentences equal the power and the profundity of verse 4. It's one of those towering monuments, those towering moments in the Psalms. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. How do we cultivate confidence in this 
fearful world, a world with wars and rumors of wars, a world where evil lurks around every corner. Our psalmist has the answer. It's looking for God. And speaking of that, verse 4 is another way of challenging our priorities and getting them set straight. What is your one thing? Can you echo this verse? How would you say that? What's that one thing beyond all other things that you seek after? You know, we live in a world of misguided one things, don't we? People around us say with their lives, one thing will I seek after, sexual fulfillment. One thing will I seek after, riches, power, comfort, human love, health, importance. And no matter how we tend to answer that question, what our one thing is, our actions always reveal what we truly seek after most, don't they? You know, we can echo verse 4, and yet we actually take the bare minimum to do that thing, to seek the Lord. Our mouths can say, God is our one thing and our greatest good, and yet our deeds often reveal that he's just one thing among many, that we are really seeking first something else. After all, our psalmist here speaks of deeds, actions, he recognizes that seeking the Lord involves action like going into the house of the Lord as we're doing here, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, meditating in his temple. These are all countercultural things in a world around us where today people say, I don't need to come to a church because nature is my church. David knows how glorious God's world is. He knows that creation is glorious, that day by day, the creation shouts, look at how amazing is our creator. And yet Psalm 27 says there's something special about being in the Lord's house, being gathered for public worship in a day when people think they don't need the church. The Bible declares you're going to miss something of God's beauty when you neglect the church, when you neglect God's house. Remember Psalm 73, the psalmist is getting caught up in seeing the prosperity of the wicked. He's troubled by it. He's perturbed. He's complaining to God. And it's only when, it's when he goes into God's house, that's when it all starts to click for him. And he senses that he shouldn't be perturbed because the wicked face a miserable end apart from God. Friends, you have so many blessings in today's world. You're able to listen to sermons Online, You're able to read the Bible uh, in your own language. But don't do those things and neglect the God-ordained means of grace found in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. J.C. Ryle commenting on, on Hebrews 10 and how we shouldn't neglect meeting together. He says, these are some of the things we miss when we don't go to church, when we have the opportunity. You could say, these are the things we miss when we neglect gazing on the Lord in his house. He says, never be absent from God's house on Sundays without good reason. Never miss the Lord's Supper when administered in our own congregation. Never let our place be empty when means of grace are going on. This is one way to be a growing and prosperous Christian. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain a precious word and season for our souls. The very assembly for prayer and praise from which we stay away Maybe the very gathering that would have cheered, established, and revived our hearts 
We know how dependent our spiritual health is on little regular habitual helps, how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. In other words, like that man who couldn't be held back when he found a treasure in the field, let's do everything we can to attend the public meeting of believers where God has promised to dispense the treasures of his grace and mercy and spiritual strength. David seeks this. And his priorities come out in his prayer. Remember, your priorities come out in what you pray for. And David said, this is the thing that he's asking the Lord for, that he's praying for. What you pray for shows what your heart desires and what you value most. And David's one thing that he seeks after, it's not just being in the Lord's house, but it's being in communion with God. Being in God's house is not the the end in itself, but he wants to do what? He wants to look on the beauty of the Lord. Friends, let me ask you this evening, do you know that the Lord is beautiful? Do you know that the Lord is beautiful? He's robed in majesty, as we sang earlier in Psalm 93. He has the splendor of holiness. All the beauty of a thousand sunsets are plain compared to who God is. All the art and the, amu- and the music that arrests us and that makes our souls ache is a dull reflection of the beauty of creation's maker. Students have pointed out, as they think about the world, man is hungry for beauty. Students of beauty have, have noted man is hungry for beauty. If we could say that God is the pinnacle of beauty, then man is hungry for God, even when they don't realize it. God has put eternity in our hearts, according to Ecclesiastes. And in the very same breath that Ecclesiastes says that, the preacher there says that whatever is beautiful in our world comes from God. He's made everything beautiful in its time. The point being that our hunger for beauty in this world is a hunger for God. Beauty beckons us. When we're struck by the appreciation or apprehension of beauty, we want to stay in its presence. We think, here, this is what's right in this miserable world. C.S. Lewis said that it's a glimpse where it makes us say, ah, this is what I was made for. Beauty's transformative. It sparks love. It's, it moves us to action. Gazing on beauty, it's being in awe of something. You're not thinking, how can I use this? For my own ends and purposes, you're caught up in it. There's a phrase, lost in wonder. Perhaps as you can think about gazing up at the stars or gazing at the fire, you get a sense of this, that God has imbued this world with a beautiful magic. Remember Psalm 8, where the psalmist is gazing up at the stars, and what does it make him do? It makes him question his relationship to God. He says, what is man that you're mindful of me? In, next to the beauty of God and the beauty of his creation, what am I? Gazing on beauty, gazing on the Lord's beauty, puts us and our felt needs and wants aside. We're changed and all we do is gaze awestruck, humbled and small compared to the glory of God. What joy it is to have a glimpse of the beauty, of the glory of God. What joy to behold Him 
and his beauty to have an inkling of it. Augustine, the church father, said, Our whole business in this life is to restore to health the eye of the heart whereby God may be seen. Our world needs to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to get an inkling of his glory. Charles Darwin, you might know that famous pioneer of evolutionary theory lamented that the longer he lived, the less beauty he beheld. Could we say that the more he resisted God, the the more he tried to see the world through atheistic lenses, the less capacity he had for beauty. All he could do was lament the loss of beauty was a loss of happiness that made him less moral. Friends, the people around us They need God. They need His beauty. God's beauty arrests us. It leads us to worship. One theologian says the triune God is ravishing. He is altogether lovely. His beauty is or ought to be transporting. Understanding something of the beauty of God should change who we are, just as it changed Moses when he came down from the mountain and had to hide his face behind a veil because he radiated the divine glory. He says, for I say, discussion of the beauty of God that stops short of worship is like a discussion of the sweetness of honey without tasting it. Friends, beholding God's glory, that changes you. That moves you to action. It leads here in the psalmist, in this psalm, to confidence, to worship. Look at verse 5. He says, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Notice that last part. He's worshiping God with shouts of joy. He's singing and making melody. You know, the world around us depicts the worship of God as a boring affair, as something that's drudgery. But God's word presents the worship and enjoyment of God as something that is joyful and wondrous. The poet Gerard Manley Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Friends, if that's nature, how much more scripture? The word of God is charged with the grandeur of God. Worship is charged with the grandeur of God. Communion with Christ is charged with the grandeur of God. It's like the Old Testament episode where uh, Jacob is seeing, he's meeting with God at Bethel, and he says, This, how amazing is this place? God is in this place. How awesome it is. Friends, this gazing on the beauty of the Lord, it's not something that God withholds, not something that He says, oh, I don't want you to experience this. He's not a spoil sport. James 1 says God gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, he's giving openly without reluctance. He's not just holding it up, tantalizing us. Remember what James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And here in this psalm, we see this in verse 7. David says God, in fact, invites us to seek him. Notice Verse 7, where David turns to God and says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. The Hebrew there is a little difficult, but what's clear is that 
God's invitation is plural. He's inviting all to seek him. And this psalmist is saying personally, at least me, I am responding to you. I'm seeking you. Today, the Lord issues that same invitation to you and to me. He says, seek my heart. How do you respond? You will be more afraid the more you neglect public worship, the less you meditate on God's word, the less you behold the beauty of Christ. But if seeking Christ, if seeking the glory and the beauty of the Lord is your one thing, then you won't be undone when all these other things fade away. God promises that if we seek Him first and His righteousness, He'll add all these things to us that we need. Friends, the Lord is beautiful. Gaze upon Him. And then finally, the Lord is faithful. Wait and hope in Him. And one of the cheerful things about the end of this psalm is that it reminds us that God does not forsake us even though we deserve to be forsaken. We deserve in our sin for God to turn His face away from us But instead, Christ is the one who cried out that psalm of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, we're people who forsake others. We turn our face away from people when they sin against us. We decide not to look upon them anymore. We cast them aside because of their works. And David even gets at this human tendency in verse 10. He says, even my father and mother have turned against me. It takes a lot for your father and mother to turn against you. He says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David knows that his bond to the Lord is stronger than his bond to any human being, even his parents. Could we say it this way? God's covenant bond. His covenant promises are unbreakable. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The Lord is utterly reliable. Even though everybody else may be unreliable, everybody else may turn aside. The psalm writer David says, the Lord is utterly faithful. Even the power of his enemies are constrained by God. And so David here petitions this faithful covenant God for protection. Despite the problems that face him, despite false accusations, despite his own sin that might make God turn away, David trusts and he believes. He says, verse 13, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What a powerful statement for us to make when we've suffered, when we face hardship in this fear-inducing world. In the ESV, uh, it doesn't translate this word in Hebrew. It doesn't translate a word in Hebrew that's there. Uh, other translations try to get at this. Um, it's sort of a, a word that means if not. And so some say, I would have despaired unless I believed. I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of living. There's something about that. In other words, David here is saying, there's something that is changed by this belief. Life would be very different if he didn't believe that he would experience the goodness of the Lord in this life. And so our psalm ends with David as one worshiper exhorting others in verse 14, wait for the Lord. 
Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In a world that rushes us into action, we're told in God's word that strength for our hearts comes in waiting on the Lord and trusting in him. Are you fearful? Rest on the Lord and his promises. Wait on him. How can you be courageous in a world like ours? Because God is faithful. Because you know your soul is secure through the work and person of Jesus Christ. The one who secures our souls from hell. The greatest thing for us to fear. He tells us, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Apostle Paul, after telling the Corinthians about the glorious new covenant promises, he says, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. God's people, when you're overwhelmed, when you're outnumbered, exhausted, or weak, rest on God's promises in Jesus Christ. Because you belong to Christ, you can say with Paul, we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Friends, as you uh, go home and think about what you've heard this week and you think about this psalm, may you be lost in wonder. Singing Zechariah 9.17, how great His goodness, how great His beauty. And specifically rejoice that you can behold the beauty and the glory of God because he sent a Savior. You know, none of us could behold God's glory, his beauty, and live because of our sin. Remember Isaiah 59 says, your sin has separated you from God. He turns away from you because of your sin. We don't have the clean hands and a pure heart that would allow us to dwell with God like an unauthorized person Uh, trying to get into the White House. We would be forcefully removed from his holy hill if we tried to access that on our own. So we can only gaze on the Lord and his beauty through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you try to behold the glory and the beauty of God while you remain his enemy, it only brings terror. I remember reading about an artist who, before he became a Christian, destroyed some of his artwork. Because he said, facing beauty brought him terror. The very things of God that make us gaze on him with wonder terrify a person who has an inkling of them apart from trusting in Christ. His holiness, his strength, his justice, his jealousy... For his beloved people, imagine those things turned against you. What we find beautiful, God's enemies find terrifying. But of course, getting a glimpse of those things, being unsettled, may be just the beginning of God blessedly unsettling your life and drawing you to Christ. And when Christ is yours, the excellencies of Christ, they drive your life. Beholding his beauty becomes that thing that you seek after. Let me remind you, friends, you'll only obey God in the proportion that you apprehend his beauty and his glory. One of the Puritans said, every man obeys Christ as he prizes Christ, not otherwise. 
That means that your pursuit of seeing God's glory, of beholding Christ's glory, is not a secondary matter in life. It wasn't a secondary matter for the Apostle Paul who told the Philippians, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing more of His fullness, of the excellence of His work and His glory, it makes us cry with Psalm 119, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of Your law. This is one thing that is worth dying for. It's the pearl of greatest price, worth discarding all the world's lesser goods for. In a world marred by the ugliness of sin, the splendor of Christ brings peace. And I want to end on one final note. Our beautiful God is beautifying ugly sinners. This is one of His many glories, isn't it? This is one of the things that we find most beautiful about God. His glory in transforming a people like us. Each of us. We were a bride. The church was a bride marred by sin. The ugliness, the distastefulness, the repugnancy of sin. God saw the glory of transforming the ugliness of our unholiness into a beautiful bride for Christ. Remember Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The splendor of holiness. That God is working in you as the Spirit of God sanctifies you and makes you more like Christ, the same God who says, Be holy, for I am holy, invites you to that splendor of His holiness. He invites you to be morally beautiful as He is beautiful. And that He's painting in your lives by His Holy Spirit. He's making you see more and more the emptiness of sin, the ugliness of sin, and the beauty of of righteousness, the beauty of holiness. Remember, we become like what we worship. If you worship idols, the Bible says, you become lifeless like those idols. But joy, it goes the other way around as well. You become more holy as you worship the Holy One. You begin to reflect His beauty, His excellence. You do beautiful things. Remember that scene where Jesus has a woman of bad reputation. He's, she's just received forgiveness and she's poured this expensive oil on his feet and she's wiping his feet with her hair and a self-righteous person cast aspersions on her. And what does he say? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Likewise, we don't think about feet as being beautiful, but what does Isaiah say? What does Romans say? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our beautiful God engages us in beautiful acts of sacrificial service to Him and to others. You see, we can't separate beauty from the suffering service of our Savior any longer. In themselves, the beautiful things that God calls us to do would be marred by sin. But remember, He looks upon your good works and He sees the beautiful brilliance of His Son. 
were made brilliant as we reflect his light, his beauty. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold the beauty, the glory of the Lord, we're being gloriously transformed by the Spirit. You know, for now, our appreciation of beauty, it fades. The wonder of looking at the most beautiful things in this world, it only, it only lasts for a little while. Realities crowd in. Your stomach starts to, to have pangs of hunger. You look at your watch eventually. All the beauty in our present experience, it's fleeting. It always ends just a little too soon. And yet, because of what God has done in Christ, because of his resurrection from the dead, and our life with him, you, friends, are not only being made beautiful, but you have the blessing of being able to endlessly gaze on the beauty of our God forever and ever. Let's pray. Our, friend, our great God, Lord, we, we fall and bow before you this evening, thankful that we have an inkling, a glimpse, a glimmer of the beauty that you have, that you are, the beauty of holiness, the beauty of sacrificial service, the beauty of what you've done for us in Christ, him bearing our sin on the cross, the beauty of forgiveness. Lord God, we're here because we've glimpsed that beauty and we want to know more of your beauty And so, Lord, we pray indeed that you would open our eyes to see your beauty coming out in the pages of Scripture, that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of the people that you have made in your image. Lord God, we pray that you would enable us to see the beauty and the brilliance of worship, that you would make our Sundays, our Lord's Days, full of the grandeur of God as we come into your house. Lord, we pray that our lives would be characterized by that one thing, seeking after you. Lord, that's something that no one can take away from us. They can take our house. They can take our families. They can take our health. But no one can take you from us. Lord, we thank you and we pray that you would bless us and continue to make us morally beautiful as Christ is beautiful. Make us more and more like him our beautiful Savior, through your Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.